the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. The busy early months of the first Democratic control of the state legislature in 40 years has produced a lot of newsworthy policymaking on a really wide range of issues. We're going to be joined today by State Senator Mallory McMorrow, an Oakland County Democrat, to discuss what's being done, why, and why it matters to people in our state. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Michigan School of Psychology and the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. And I'm glad you've decided to join us today. There are a lot of things about being in politics that are just hard. You need to collaborate sometimes with people you may not like or believe in. You need to spend a lot of time raising money, often from people who are doing things you don't like or believe in. And you may have to compromise on your own values doing things you don't like or believe in to make positive change. All this is especially true when two very different political parties have to share power. And for a long time here in Michigan, that's kind of been the case where it's really hard or rare to get ultimate power or sweeping power in the hands of one party or another. It certainly happened more for Republicans than it has for Democrats, who arrived in Lansing in January for the first time in 40 years with control over the governor's office, over the House of Representatives, and over the state Senate. And now, with that kind of majority it seems like they're trying to sprint. Two bills to outlaw discrimination against LGBTQ individuals passed the Michigan House last Wednesday. The state house also recently approved bills that require background checks with uh, while a full 11 bill gun control package in the Senate recently advanced out of committee. And on Tuesday, the Michigan Senate voted to repeal the state's right to work law something that has been absolutely controversial in our state since it passed more than a decade ago. A lot of bills, a lot of them absolutely poised to become law. State Senator Mallory McMorrow is a Democrat who represents the 8th District here in Michigan. It includes a lot of cities in Oakland County and part of Detroit. And she's been somebody who has been a leader on many of these bills brewing in the state legislature right now. But she's also been somebody who's been out front on these issues 
for a long time. There is a lot happening in Lansing right now. And if these things get to the governor's desk in the shape that they seem prepared to get to her desk in, they're going to really remake the face of law here in Michigan in a dramatic way. So that's what we want to talk about today. What is going on in Lansing? Why is it happening? And how will it change life for people here in the state of Michigan? Mallory McMorrow, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning, Steve, and thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So I I just want to talk briefly before we get into each of these issues about the setting for all of this. Uh, I believe that that, uh, we talked to you after the elections last year, but before uh, the session started in, in January, and it was kind of unclear still what the agenda might look like and what the pace of that agenda would look like once Democrats actually were seated in power in in Lansing. Uh, Tell me about uh, what you've seen so far, three months now into the year, two months into the year, and and how it reflects uh, what you maybe anticipated would happen uh, back when back when the election happened in November. Yeah, it has been a blindingly fast pace. Uh, we started our, our session on January 21st, so we are now going into two months, uh, two full months of uh, Democratic-controlled legislature. And I think there was a lot of pressure on Democrats, as you noted, not having had power in 40 years in the state Senate and, and not a trifecta in 40 years to prove that we can govern. I think that there was a lot of talks, especially in Lansing, of, you know, Democrats haven't chaired committees, Democrats haven't run legislation. Can they do it? And right out of the gate in both the State House and the State Senate on day one, we introduced six bills that include expanding Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act, as you mentioned, uh, repealing the 1931 abortion ban, repealing right to work, and also economic pocketbook issues like repealing the retirement tax and expanding the earned income tax credit. And by the end of hopefully this week or before we head into legislative spring break next week, we will have accomplished all of those things. So I think it's sending a really loud message to the rest of the state that we are here to work, we're here to govern, and we're here to deliver for the reasons that people elected us into office. And give us a sense of how that is playing out, uh, for instance, on the Senate floor. As I said, this is the first time that Democrats have been in charge in a really long time. You still have Republicans in the in the chamber who are used to things being really different and used to having much more uh, of their way. I think there has always been a sense that you know bipartisan efforts are uh, are the best in terms of uh, policy making. Is that happening, or is this really just about Democrats having the votes to be able to do things that they haven't been able to do in a long time? You know, I do think that that bipartisan work is the ultimate goal. But to level set, Michigan previously was one of the worst gerrymandered states in the entire country. So even a few cycles in the past, Democrats statewide were getting more total votes, um, but Republicans still had majorities in the legislature. So you had this real disconnect with where the majority of residents 
political leanings lied in the makeup of their state legislature. So we saw, you know, certainly in my first term, I flipped a Republican district to get elected uh, in 2018. But the only power I had for four years was really just to give speeches. I introduced 49 bills on every single issue I ran on and didn't get a hearing on a single one, including red flag laws, extreme risk protection orders, gun safety bills that we are now passing um, this week. And I think that this is the moment of kind of resetting, of sending the signal that there are a lot of priorities that are backlogged that we've wanted to work on for, you know, potentially 40 years that we're going to move forward. But we have had bipartisan votes on some of these issues, especially repealing the retirement tax, expanding the earned income tax credit. Uh, And I know that we in the Senate especially are looking into getting into that groove of, okay, sending the signal. There's a new day. There's a new leadership in charge now. But we're also here to work together. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that uh, after this first push of kind of that backlog of priorities to get into a groove where we're going to open our arms and say, let's work together and get things done. I'm talking with State Senator Mallory McMorrow. She's a Democrat who represents the 8th District here in Michigan. It includes a lot of cities in Oakland County and now part of Detroit. We're talking about these early months of Democratic control in Lansing. Uh, Not only uh, was Governor Gretchen Whitmer re-elected in November, but the party that she represents, the Democrats, took control of the House of Representatives and the State Senate for the first time in nearly four decades. Uh, We're talking about what they've done already uh, in the early months of, of having that new control and what's to come. And of course, what effect all of this is having or is going to have on our lives here in Michigan. We'd love to hear from you, our listeners, during the conversation as well. What do you make of the state Democrats' agenda on things like gun control, uh, protecting LB- LGBTQ rights, uh, right to work, making Michigan's government more transparent? Are these the things that you think Michigan legislators should be focusing on right now? Are they doing the things that uh, you think we need done here in uh, the Great Lakes State? Uh, What are the biggest needs of Michigan residents as you see them? Also, if you just have any questions for State Senator McMorrow about how bills are passed, about how Democrats are prioritizing issues in Lansing, this is the time to ask them. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Mallory, I want to talk uh, about uh, specific issues now uh, that that you guys have been working on, and and I want to start with what I think is uh, the biggest, uh, the biggest change uh, that that that's on the docket here, uh, and that's the expansion of uh, Elliot Larson, uh, the Civil Rights Act here in Michigan, to include protections for uh, LGBTQ uh, citizens here in Michigan. Um, that that seems likely, of course, to to, to happen uh, given the the direction that things are headed and the momentum that has been built up. But I want to start with you talking just a little about how important this change is uh, to people's lives. I think one of the things that that gets lost in discussions and debates about this issue is the way that the law previously or, or right now until it's changed uh, does really affect how how people live, and it puts an awful lot of people at risk of unfair negative consequences that I th- I'm not sure everybody quite understands. 
Yeah, that's a great point. So as it stands, the current Elliot Larson Civil Rights Act does include protections on the basis of sex, uh, but that does not explicitly include gender identity and sexual orientation. So to date, it has allowed for legal discrimination against people who are LGBTQ um, from employment. People have been fired just because their boss or their employer has found out that they are gay, uh, and they can be denied housing. We just had a roundtable discussion in Ferndale about the Elliot Larson Civil Rights Act, and there was an older woman, probably in her 70s, who shared this just devastating story about a woman she had grown up with, one of her lifelong friends, a lesbian, who she was looking to move into a senior apartment complex. And she felt forced to tell all of her friends that from this day forward, she is no longer a lesbian woman. She's just a bridge player. She told her friends not to contact her. She told them not to come over because she does not want to lose this apartment. And there are hundreds and hundreds of stories that have been filed with the ACLU uh, of this exact reality for people, that people have had to hide who they are or they've lost housing or they've lost employment. And this is merely correcting a wrong to make sure everybody in our state has the same rights that many of us, you know, I am a a straight married woman. Um, I can't be discriminated or fired just because of who I am. Our neighbors should have those same protections. Yeah. Um, Talk about the um, what these bills would uh, would change. The Michigan Supreme Court ruled last year that sexual orientation is already a prohibited form of discrimination on the basis of sex uh, in Elliott Larson. So why does this legislative change still matter so much? So what we've seen in the past is that court interpretations are subject to change, depending on the makeup of the Supreme Court. Uh, If there is a new Supreme Court that comes in in a couple of years that is more conservative, they can reverse that interpretation and say that the word sex no longer includes gender identity and sexual orientation. So the change in statute is necessary to make sure that it is no longer up to the interpretation of a court, that it is ironclad, and it is a protection that is going to be here from this day forward. Um, What about people who say that um, they're a little squeamish about giving trans people full rights or who believe that those folks are somehow being warped by social media or a liberal cultural agenda. This is, a, this is an issue that, um, that we're hearing and seeing a lot of really bitter debate about. It, it makes me sad when I see it because I, 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 always, um, I always feel like that, you know, giving somebody else their rights doesn't take away from yours, but but an awful lot of people do see it that way. What do you what what would you say to those folks? It is, and it's it's a really sad moment that we're living in. And what we've seen, and you're mentioning a lot of issues that are, are kind of the culture wars that we're living in right now, where there are certain groups that are targeting the trans community, especially right now in a way to make certain people feel so angry towards somebody that they may not even have met before. A lot of people may not even realize if they've ever met a trans person in real life. Um, And to be convinced that somehow all of their problems are somebody else's fault. This is simply, to your point, making sure everybody has equal rights, making sure a trans person has access to an apartment and a good job without being fired does nothing to take 
my rights away in the same way that we fought for racial equality. And that does nothing to take away um, access for white residents if we are no longer allowing discrimination based on race. Uh, Jeremy Moss, who is our only openly gay state senator, gave a really good example. If we're going to open up this window of allowing people's personal religious beliefs to be used to discriminate against other people, um, he's not only you know a, an out gay man, he's Jewish. He abides by, you know, kosher law. Mm -hmm. And he brought up the point, you know, should I be allowed to discriminate against pork eaters because based on my religious belief, I don't eat pork. It's just, you know, there's the difference between freedom of religion and what you believe and what you practice and utilizing that to discriminate against somebody else. And that's what this change in the Civil Rights Act is going to protect against. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with State Senator Mallory McMorrow about the frenetic pace of legislating going on in Lansing right now with Democratic control. Uh, also, we'll get going with you on the phones and on social. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Give us a call. Tell us what you make of what the Democrats are up to in the early months of uh, this new session in Lansing. Also, give us a sense of what you would like to see them do that maybe they haven't gotten to yet. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the program that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for tuning in. We're talking with State Senator Mallory McMorrow. She's a Democrat, represents the 8th District here in uh, the State Senate. We're talking about uh, all the things that Democrats have endeavored to do now that they have control of both uh, the House of Representatives and the State Senate in Lansing. Uh, We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you make of all of this activity? What do you make of the changes that uh, are on tap in Lansing? Uh, Also, give us a sense of things that you might want them to do that they maybe haven't gotten to yet. Uh, ER on Twitter says, this is why we voted them in. Glad to see they're delivering quickly. Really grossed out by the inhumanity the Republicans are showing MSU and Oxford students. They're, uh, I think, referring to gun legislation, which we're going to talk about in a second with Senator McMorrow. Uh, He says, these are traumatized children and you don't have the decency to let them tell their story. Tobias on Twitter says, uh, what's the pulse in the Senate to repeal or at least Fix the god-awful auto no-fault reform. Car insurance keeps going up and survivors are still suffering. Another issue that we will be asking Senator McMorrow about. Big Neo says, do the Dems in Michigan have any ideas to have light rail going? A rail from DTW to downtown Detroit and Ann Arbor would be nice. Additionally, adding light rail to the Joe Lewis Greenway and the Dequinder Cut would be a nice way for folks to get around the city. Uh, I'm going to start with the gun legislation, um, Mallory, out of that uh, that raft of comments on on social media. That has real momentum in in Lansing as well. Tell us what you think the final shape of the bills will be like and what difference they will make um, in terms of uh, firearm safety and, and possession in Michigan? Yeah, so the first three concepts uh, that are part of an 11-bill package that we reintroduced uh, this term include 
universal background checks, making sure that anybody who purchases a firearm has to go through a background check, uh, safe storage requiring that if you are a firearm owner, that you keep that firearm safely stored so that a minor cannot get access to it, and red flag laws or extreme risk protection orders, which are a tool that 19 other states have that allow a court to temporarily order the confiscation of firearms from somebody who is an immediate risk to themselves or others. And this is particularly notable for suicide by firearm, which is actually 60% of suicides are suicide by firearm. And we've heard just devastating testimony from families uh, who saw all the red flags who knew that they had either a veteran who was suffering from PTSD or we heard from parents uh, whose daughter had suffered mental health issues her entire life, got access to a firearm despite the mom calling and calling and pleading with law enforcement to take it away. Uh, And she ended up killing her twin brother, Mm. killing herself and killing her partner. And these two parents were both gun owners themselves who said they just assumed that this was already a law, that if somebody was, you know, hospitalized for mental health issues, that they could not come out on the other side and legally purchase a firearm. Um, Again, here, you've got a lot of folks who believe that, you know, the Second Amendment says uh, there there shall be no real restrictions on on gun ownership or or, or, or gun use. What do you say to folks um, who who are in that camp? Uh, it's uh, you know one of the issues that's been brought up is that states with red flag laws rarely use them, and the AP found that in Chicago since 2020, the law has been used just four times, and the city has had 8,500 shootings during that time. Um, how do you answer the, 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 the doubts about gun legislation? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the red flag concern because that is I'm the primary bill sponsor on that package and have been working on this uh, since I took office and state rep Robert Wittenberg worked on it many years before me. This is a, a law that works really for specific use cases. You know, I mentioned suicide, um, also domestic violence, something where there is a very clear red flag, a repeated pattern of behavior um, that would allow a family member, a loved one, or a law enforcement officer to file uh, for this extreme risk protection order with a court. Now, we're the first to say, you know, one law is not going to prevent all types of gun violence. So when you think about, you know, a lot of this seemingly senseless gun violence, accidents, drive-by shootings, gang violence, a lot of this stuff is not covered by a red flag law. And frankly, it's not what it is designed to protect from. So it is merely one tool in a number of tools that we're looking at. Uh, But in the wake of the Michigan State shooting, there were kids who came to the Capitol not even 48 hours after they had all survived a school shooting. And something that really stood out to me, they came up to the microphone one after another after another and shared their stories, more than 100 kids. And it stuck out to me how many of them said that this was not the first time that they had been impacted by gun violence, that they had lost somebody to suicide or domestic violence. There was a girl who said she, her elementary school was next to a gas station and just how many times she had to go on lockdown because the gas station was being robbed. So with these bills, these are bills that have 70, 80, 90 percent support on a bipartisan basis statewide. And this is what we wanted to start with um, because they're proven in other states. They, for a majority of responsible gun owners, this is never going to impact them in any way, shape or form. Uh, But the goal has to be to reduce gun violence on the whole in the same way that we think about any other issue, car accidents. You know, we don't target specific incidents. We talk about how do we reduce 
the overall amount of fatalities and make things safer. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone to call and uh, discuss with us what you think of the Democratic activity in Lansing since they took control of the legislature and uh, have moved pretty quickly on a number of uh, high-priority Democratic issues. Uh, Also give us a sense of what you'd like to see them do uh, as they continue to have control at least for the next two years. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we can include you in the conversation that way. Uh, I, I do want to talk uh, about um, right to work, uh, of course, which is another uh, kind of hot button issue that uh, that has been taken up in Lansing to be repealed. Uh, talk about uh, that that moment uh, here in Michigan. That, that you know when it happened, uh, almost I guess eleven years ago. Um, uh, you know there was a real there was a real. Um, uh, I think uh, there was a real reaction to it that went beyond just policymaking. Uh, there, there's a lot of emotion tied up, I think, in the idea of uh, organizing here in Michigan. Of course, our history uh, with unions in, in Detroit and Flint uh, plays a, a huge role in that. But, but going back uh, and, and taking that, uh, that piece of legislation away, I think, also has real emotional resonance. Yeah, you know, going back, as you mentioned, over a decade ago, right to work was passed in the state of Michigan during a lame duck session. So this right. is the period after an election uh, and before a new term takes over. There, were, there wasn't a single hearing on right to work. It was just kind of jammed through. And we saw, you know, the Capitol was shut down. There were protests with labor members and union members from all over the state who were denied access to their own capital. And you cut to now. What we've seen is proponents of so-called right to work continue to argue that it makes a state more competitive. And that hasn't borne out to be true at all. Uh, I serve now as the chair of the Senate Economic and Community Development Committee. And what we've seen in survey after survey after survey is whether or not a state is a right to work state never even cracks the top 10 of reasons why a company might locate or expand within a state. They're looking for things like talent, infrastructure, education, making sure they have the right workforce. So when you take that aspect out of it, all it's doing is reducing organizing power. We know that states that are right to work, whether you are a member of a union or not, have lower average salaries on the whole. So this is about restoring workers' rights. Uh, I think that some of the opponents argue that it's forced unionization, but I saw somebody uh, equated, which I really loved in a very simple way. You know, nobody is forced to work a night job. If you apply for a night job, you're going to work a night job. Um, If you want to work during the day, apply for a job that works during the day. If you are going to apply to a unionized workplace where a majority of your colleagues have voted to form a union, uh, that's what repealing right to work protects uh, and still gives people the option. But I think as we've seen, it hasn't made us any more competitive. It does bring wages down. And this was, you know, we had hearings on the repeal, which is a marked change from what happened a decade ago. And it was really wonderful to see the same people who were locked out of their capital a decade ago be welcomed in this week. Uh, and we're cheering when when we made the repeal. It was a pretty great day. Uh, former Governor Rick Snyder had a lot to say about this recently. And, I mean, he, he 
came up right out and said, you know, this is essentially a hangout closed for business sign uh, on, on Michigan. And it is true that if you go back to, uh, you know, the time when, when this was passed, uh, which was also a really different economic time, uh, and look at the trends, um, you know, since then in terms of uh, business activity in the, in the state, they, they've gotten better. Now, I don't know that you can necessarily attribute that to right to work, but, uh, you know, uh, there's no question that things have gone in the right direction. Are, are you at all worried, I guess, that this will put a damper in any way on, on those things? It, not just attracting um, not just attracting uh, businesses to, to, to open and do business here, but, but also the, the kind of growth we want to see, the kind of wage growth we want to see. Is there any possibility in your mind that this sends a signal to business that, um, that is unwelcoming? You know, I'm not worried. Um, and I'm not worried because, as I mentioned, this is never a top factor that businesses are considering. But right now, the reality is Michigan has more open jobs than we have people to fill them, mm-hmm. which is the reality that a lot of states are facing. We have an aging workforce. Um, we had a presentation with an economist that said if every single childbearing age woman in the state of Michigan got pregnant right now, uh, we still wouldn't replace our workforce, which felt a little bit like a personal attack. But, you know, I'll <laughs> take that aside. <laughs> but I think when we are looking to how we actually grow the state, Businesses are going to invest where they have the workforce. And for us to be able to attract and retain the best workers, we want to be a place where you're going to have a great job. You're going to have a great salary. You're going to have benefits. So I think things like expanding Elliott Larson and repealing right to work may not seem like economic development policy, but they are. It says that you are welcome here in Michigan. You're going to have great protections. You're going to have the ability to organize should you choose to do that. And I think that is the way forward because companies are going to expand where the talent is. Yeah. Uh, we did have a, a comment uh, on social asking about um, car insurance and no-fault reform. I, I, I feel like these days everybody seems to agree that what was done earlier to try to change this is not working uh, as well as we thought it was uh, it would and it has it has had some unintended uh, consequences as well what's the appetite in Lansing among democrats to to revisit this uh, while while you have control you know the appetite is 100% there i was one of four senators who voted against uh, the 2019 auto no fault reform for, for this specific reason, that it was asking residents to take a lower level of coverage for a promise of cost savings that hasn't borne out. And we kind of saw that writing on the wall with the way that the, the 2019 reform um, was proposed, was that the guarantees for cost savings were weak at best, and at worst, it was cutting your coverage. And we've seen in other states that have performed you know, similar transitions that maybe your auto insurance rates have come down, but your health care costs have gone up. Uh, because there was a lot when it related to catastrophic injuries, you know, brain trauma injuries that our auto no-fault insurance system covered that maybe your health insurance doesn't. So the appetite is there. I know that among a lot of my Democratic colleagues, even who are returning, because this was the first piece of legislation that passed in 2019 when so many of us were brand new and figuring out how to do the job, that I know a lot of my colleagues feel like 
they may have been misled by proponents of the bill that there were unintended consequences that we weren't aware of. Uh, so we are digging into what reforms can look like, uh, making sure we're bringing stakeholders to the table. But it is a priority for our new majority. Yeah. Uh- also on the on the list of maybes, I, I, I guess is um, the the reform of FOIA in in the state of of Michigan. Uh, we've been talking about this forever, um, and making state government in particular more more transparent. Governor Whitmer said that was one of the things she wanted to do when she was elected. Uh, what what can we expect from Democrats on that issue? I think you're going to see real reform. You know, this is something that in the last term, it was championed by both Jeremy Moss and Ed McBroom, a Republican from the Upper Peninsula. Mm -hmm. And these are bills to expand, you know, making the legislature um, open to FOIA, uh, expanding transparency here. It's something that a lot of us support, but previous Senate leadership did not want to take it up. So I think you'll see movement. It is sunshine week this week. So I think you'll start to see bills reintroduced and begin to make them way through the committees. Yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here. Let's go to John on the east side. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I, I was I was fortunate enough to uh, speak to uh, the Speaker of the House and uh, Senator Chang last night. They uh, visited us for a meeting in Jefferson Chalmers about our flooding issues, and I and I thank them for uh, the right to work. So I'm with uh, Local 38 IATSE, the International Theatrical Stage uh, Employees Union, and uh, we we serve all the the venues downtown and for entertainment purposes. And over the last 10 years, not one person has uh, not paid into our dues. Mm. And they don't even question it because we are a union, and we use that money to facilitate our services and to educate our workforce and we are constantly in training that is paid for through our union dues and uh, that's why people request us when they come into town and they want to set up a show they want an IATSE member yeah uh, John I'm, I'm glad you called and and shared that because I think uh, again there there are a lot of people who have very strong feelings about unions and labor and don't have a lot of experience uh, interacting in in you know a unionized uh, collective bargaining in, environment and so to hear you tell that story I think really matters uh, again for folks who who maybe just don't know uh, who have strong feelings about it because of their ideology but the practical level of it uh, is not something they they have experienced uh, Senator McMorrow I wonder what your reaction is yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that, that John called and shared that story because that's exactly right. And as you look around the country right now, and we're seeing uh, the highest approval of unions in decades, and I'm a millennial. You know, I am of the generation that graduated into the Great Recession, and there are so many people around my age who just feel like every time we start to get ahead, we get kicked back. So we are now starting to see, you know, Starbucks unionize. We're now starting to see video game companies unionize, where there are young workers who get into careers that they love, but are being taken advantage of, are forced to work long hours, are forced to work in unsafe conditions. So I think a lot of this will also be about what collective bargaining and unions can do for you, um, because it does give you, the worker, a seat at the table to negotiate to make sure that you have safe working conditions, you have fair pay, uh, and that you have a career that 
is something that you love, but does not become the only thing in your life. Yeah. I've got just two more issues I want to have you address. One is uh, the RTA, uh, public transit here in southeast Michigan and around the state. Uh, Big Neo on Twitter did ask about some, I think, quite fanciful things that we would really love to have here. Uh, but but even beyond those, the fundamentals are really still still lacking. And I know that for the most part, this is, you know, a local government and regional issue. But but talk about the role that you think uh, the state government can play and, and the role that Democrats might like it to play here. I love the question. And I'm so excited he asked about it. I was very intentional in restructuring the committee that I now chair to be the Committee on Economic and Community Development, mm-hmm. because we know that, you know, Metro Detroit is one of the only major metropolitan regions in the country that does not have a robust transit system. Uh, When we talk about even something as simple as the city of Detroit wanting to host more conventions, that's wonderful. But if you can't get from the airport to downtown Detroit without getting an Uber or renting a car um, or taking a black car or a cab, that's not a feasible option. We're also in a moment right now where with the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act and some of the federal funding, I think this is a moment that we're never going to see in our lifetimes where there's an opportunity to kind of dream big, put some projects on the table and maybe pull down some federal funding to start investing in that process. Uh, There is legislation that I have pulled down out of New Jersey, which actually in 1979, they created the NJ transit system in a way to allow the state to identify economically advantageous corridors from the state level and invest in transit there. So as I'm thinking about the RTA, you know, the RTA has kind of gotten stuck in the past few terms because they have to put a plan to the voters based on a millage. So if that plan isn't comprehensive enough, we've seen voters in Macomb, outer Oakland County voting it down. Uh, So it's this catch-22. So I am looking through the committee as we think about economic development and the fact that maybe younger people don't want to have a car, don't want to pay for insurance, uh, but still want to get around. How can we bring this into the conversation, take advantage of this moment to pull down federal dollars and start to build the system that we've needed for decades? This is the time to do it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the last issue is is energy and the the, the grid here in Southeast Michigan in particular. I know that uh, DTE and consumers were in Lansing this week testifying about, uh, you know, the, the massive outages and the long periods of time that it's now taking uh, when these outages happen for them to get people uh, reconnected. I, I don't know that I've seen or heard people more frustrated uh, with the, the power companies than they are Right now, there's a lot of anger out there. What can the state legislature be doing about it, and what what should it be doing? It has been absolutely devastating. You know, the area that I represent has already had some of the most frequent outages and the longest outages, even before this ice storm and the snowstorm. I was up late nights hearing from people. There was a constituent who had a live wire in her backyard that was arcing six-foot flames for days because DTE wouldn't show up and the fire department wouldn't touch it because it's a live wire. That's just one of so many stories that we've been hearing. So there will be a Senate hearing uh, next week with DTE and consumers as well. And then from there, it's going to be figuring out, okay, what do we need to do to hold them accountable? When they're asking for rate increases, how do we ensure that those increases are actually going to invest in the system and not cutting maintenance and service, which is something that uh, Bridge Magazine reported DTE did last year. 
and making sure that this doesn't happen again. The reality is there is more frequent extreme weather now. Climate change is here. We cannot keep building the grid the same way and expecting different results. We have to evolve it to our new reality. Uh, the the estimates there are somewhere around $2 billion uh, that, that a lot of people think uh, we need to, to, to fix that grid. Should that money come from the power companies? Should that money come from state government? I mean, how do we come up with that kind of uh, capital for that? And and if it should come from the companies, how do we make them? How do we make them do that? Is that what the uh, the commission uh, that regulates utilities should be focused on? I do think the commission should be focused on that work. And right now, the reality is that Michigan, for commercial customers, so think large manufacturing plants, we actually have very competitive energy rates. But for residents, we have some of the highest rates in the entire Midwest and in the entire country. So clearly, there's a disconnect between rate setting based on various customers, and that's an economic development issue. So if there is a need, which there is, to upgrade the grid, to evolve it, to meet this climate moment, I think that cost should likely be borne by the power company and potentially government as well. Because if we are losing residents or not gaining residents because of lack of reliability with our power grid, if we want people to start small businesses, if we want them to be entrepreneurs or run a business out of their home, they need to know that they can rely on that energy. So that's where we can't pass that cost on to residents. Residents are already paying some of the highest costs, but we've got to get it done. Okay, State Senator Mallory McMorrow, it is always great to have you here to talk about uh, what's going on in Lansing. Thanks so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. When we come back, we're going to move from politics and discuss another topic that's really important to a lot of Michiganders, education. We're going to talk with the Wayne State University provost about the kinds of benefits Wayne State students from families making under $70,000 are going to start receiving. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. This week, Wayne State University announced that it will cover 100% of tuition for eligible students whose families earn less than $70,000 a year. To help us understand how this works and why the university is implementing this policy, we're joined by Mark Cornblue. He is the provost and chief academic officer at Wayne State. Mark, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. So let's talk about the Wayne State Guarantee and uh, how it works. Yes, we're we're really excited by this new guarantee that um, any student, who, any applicant to, to Wayne State whose um, family income is $70,000 or below um, will be eligible, we will support, um, and they will have no tuition or fees um, to go to Wayne State. Um, <laughs> There, there is a um, 
there's a uh, minimum, you can't go over a certain amount of family assets as well, but houses do not count in assets. So that really doesn't affect uh, any students. So, so um, talk about what the university hopes to accomplish with this plan. Why and why now is the right time to implement it? So I'll do this in reverse order. Well, right now is uh, because of the Michigan Achievement Scholarship. So the uh, the legislature and the governor have moved to make Michigan one of the leaders in the country to support uh, college education as part of the governor's uh, uh, 60 by 30 goal. And so the additional support from the state government allows us to extend our support to students dramatically. Um, Wayne State is already um, the most important access school in the state. We have uh, Currently in this year's class, uh, I think 46% of the students um, pay no out-of-pocket uh, dollars for tuition and fees. And with, th with this, I expect we will go to over 60% uh, as this phase is in over the next four years. Uh, one of the things that I always wonder about these kinds of guarantees is whether they also guarantee that uh, you'll support these tuition and fees um, without loans. I mean, we, we're in the middle of a college debt crisis. Uh, there is a big argument going on in Washington about whether the president can on his own uh, forgive some of that and a, a bigger discussion really about uh, about college debt and, and how to reform it. How does that fit into this? Uh, how does that conversation fit into this program? So absolutely. This guarantee is that there'll be no out-of-pocket expense for tuition and fees. Um, it, does, it doesn't cover housing and room and board, but it covers tuition and fees. And many of our students, as you know, choose to live at homes. Um, we, we are also looking for additional financial support to be able to support more students' housing and food costs as well. And we've increased that dramatically for the coming year. But this is, this is a guarantee without loans. Wayne State is already one of the, uh, our students, our, our undergraduate students have amongst the lowest loan debt of any uh, major research university in the country. So we're, we're, we're with you on this. The, yeah. the goal here is to get students uh, successfully completed to college and started on their career in good shape. And that means without large amounts of debt. Yeah. So so then the, the I guess the second part of that question really is, so how does the university afford this uh you know uh, michigan is not doing really great i think in terms of investment in higher ed uh we're doing better than we used to but we're still way behind uh, a lot of other states how how have you been able to come up with uh, a way to fund this at wayne well, so we, you know, we're pretty unique in the country to be a major research university that's also a university of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And our our student body, our undergraduate student body is a very high percentage of first-generation college students. In fact, you know, from the city and many for who are first generation Americans as well. So so we have students who uh, we we largely serve students who are coming with less economic needs um, and less economic means. And our goal is to open the doors of opportunity for them. So so we can afford this because 
both government support and the university's budget. So many of those students qualify for Pell funds, which is federal government support for uh, lower income students. And so um, we would utilize Pell funds for those students who are eligible for that. Um, and then the Michigan Achievement Scholarship provides another $5,500. So you add the Pell Fund with the $5,500 and then the university commits its own scholarship dollars to, uh, to fill that gap so that there's a guaranteed no out-of-pocket for fees and tuition. Yeah, uh, you, you've touched on this a little, but I want to talk a little more about it. Wayne State ranks really high in social mobility. Talk about what that means and how this new program would improve uh, that mobility. Well, there are lots of different measures out there in the country for social mobility, and the term is not always self-evident. I like the term opportunity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in social mobility, we're talking about student, you know, students who come in from families with less economic resources, uh, and then uh, what, what? So we we accept a large number of students who do that. In fact. Uh, if you compare us to every university in the state, our our students come with far fewer economic resources than any other university in the state. In fact, than any other community, any community college in the state except Wayne Community College, which we partner with. So, so we, so we support students who are coming in, uh, and you know, college is hard, often hard for them. Um, and then social mobility measures also indicate that we do a good job of graduating them and preparing them for jobs and ensuring we can graduate them, to your point, with low debt. So, that, so there's sort of four measures that go into this, you know, uh, are you serving students from less economic uh, resources? How, what are their chances to graduate? Are they going to graduate without a huge amount of debt? And do they get jobs afterwards? And, you know, so we pay a lot of attention to all four of those measures. Yeah. Our graduation rate has grown the fastest of any major university over the last decade in the country. Yeah. Uh, one of the issues with graduation rates also is the gap between uh, African-American students and others. Talk about how this program will maybe uh, continue to try to address that gap. Um, absolutely. I think we're, these days we, we, we don't focus so much on the gap. We focus on improving the graduation rate of everybody. So, um, you know, and, and our African-American and Latina and Latino graduation rates have, have, have doubled in, in the last decade. Um, we still have a ways to go. We're, you know, K-12 preparation is an important part of college success. And um, we we are working with K-12 schools to try to uh, better prepare students when they come in here. We have uh, new support programs for all students, a program called Warrior 360 that is really promising. And um, we, we, we keep working to improve the graduation rates of everyone. Um, uh, I don't want to cut the gap by by ensuring that only black students graduate and white students don't, I want to make a difference for everybody, and that's what we're working towards. Okay, uh, Mark Cornblue, uh, Wayne State University Provost and Senior Vice President for Academic Affairs. Really great to have you here to talk about this uh, great new program at the university. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. 
That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to do something really fun. We're going to talk with two people about an 80-year-old study on what truly makes us most happy in life. A nice light subject for the end of the week here on Detroit Today. Also remember, if you like this show and enjoy listening, you ought to share it with the people you know, your friends, your relatives, your neighbors. We are really trying to build a community here, and uh, the more people that are a part of it, the better it will be for all of us. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.